Welcome. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm director of the Institute for Government and delighted to have you here to um, in launch. Is this the launch or one of the launches of this book, British Foreign Policy After Brexit? Uh, remarkably uh, boldly forward-looking, where many of the discussions we have in this room, as you will know, are very much on the uh, current state of Brexit. Uh, David uh, Ludlow and David Owen have uh, written this together and have made quite a thing, if I can put it that way, of having been on opposite sides of the referendum vote. David Ludlow voted spell it out, uh, voting Remain and David Owen voting Leave, and yet have said, look, we've come together to write this book about what Britain and its foreign policy might be after Brexit. We can uh, debate with them uh, whether or not that assumes uh, that it is indeed completed. Let me just say certain things briefly um, about them. David Ludlow um, has a, a career both the public and private sectors began at the Foreign Office back in the, in the 80s, right through to the mid-90s, not a quiet time there, and was, uh, was International Business Development Director at UK Export Finance and has um, held a lot of senior roles in corporate investment banking, including the Standard Chartered um, Citigroup, and I know it has quite a bit of experience in the Middle East, uh, very relevant to a big chunk of this, this, this book. David Owen, Lord Owen, MP, as you know, for Plymouth for 26 years and uh, was under Labour governments, um, Navy Minister, Health Minister, and as we know, Foreign Secretary, and uh, then founder and one of the leaders of the SDP and the continuing, uh, the Social Democratic Party and the continuing SDP after that, and has written many books, of which this is simply the latest. Well, look, we're delighted to have you both, both here. This book is very uh, you've uh, labelled it very clearly British foreign policy after Brexit, but I wondered if you would forgive me in just trying to take us briefly from here to there, and how do you think we should get through Brexit? What was your preferred route? And then we will go, go on and debate at length these things about after Brexit. Well, David. in an international negotiation, though sometimes people in this country forget it, with 27 other countries, so inevitably the government makes the policy, if they're wise, they listen a little more than they are to the fact that a very substantial number of uh, votes to leave came from people outside the Tory party. But it's clear to me what's going to happen. There will be, as the Prime Minister said, an implementation period. This is the big gap for the Brexiteers. Many of them, and including me, hoped this could all be done in two years. Once it became inevitable, that was not going to be conceded by the EU and probably not possible. Uh, then you had to change your strategy. You had to think what you're going to do in the transitional period. And it seems to me obvious that an element in that, whether it's bespoke or not, is to continue as a contracting party to the EEA agreement. And that's, I think, the basic building block. If you want to keep uh, customs union, I think it's difficult to negotiate that, but if you can keep it for the implementation period, I don't particularly object, I wouldn't seek it. But you also need some other adjustments, which is why I think it would be a bespoke agreement for the City of London, which is not covered by uh, the EEA agreement, there are parts of that. But I think it has to then go to what is the end purpose of the implementation period, and I think it's a better word than transition, 
because it implies already in the Article 50 framework you will have set the context. Now, you should be quite open about it. It will be similar to the Canadian Free Trade Agreement. You don't need to go over all the vast majority of the text was anyhow negotiated primarily by Britain because Britain is such a big part of the Canadian market, far, far bigger than any. Germany comes second and way down, actually, and then other small countries. So I would fix on that and get some f finality in what you're after. And then during that period, we must be ready to pay quite substantial sums of money because we are, in effect, continuing for a, an important period as part economically and financially of the EU. Now, what that money sum is, I don't know, or how long that transition lasts. So it should be uh, more generous than probably people would think, and I, I don't, it's not for me to get, put figures around. And that, I think, will be the end result, unless some uh, madness grips uh, key figures in London and in Paris and in Germany and in uh, Berlin, and I don't think that will happen. Uh, and I remind everybody that it's not just Article 50, it's Article 8, which is about good neighbourliness. Mm. Mm. All right, so just, just to be clear, you're talking about um, um, an implementation period during which we'd be a member of the European Economic Area. We already are. We already are, so we continue those. Mm -hmm. And um, then aim for a free trade agreement, a bespoke one, but heavily modelled on the Canadian deal. Yeah. yeah. All right. David, how do we get from uh, here to some destination of your choosing, which doesn't have to be that one? I think that was why we started, where we started from and not, yeah. not having to deal with this, this tricky path there. And, and I think we would have had a lot more differences in writing the book if we tried to start from day one as to where, how we got mm -hmm. there and then what came next. I mean, the reason I've ever remained was very much to keep the, the economic benefits of being in, in the union. I think it, it's critical that we maintain as much of that as possible. But we do have to realise the sort of negotiation we're in. And, and certainly from my perspective, I'm not sure there's uh, enough reality uh, in, the, in the negotiating position. We've got, we're up against 27 countries who have agreed their position. It's I mean, it's amazing that they've got an agreed position, I think, given the decision-making in Brussels. The chance of them deviating huge amounts of flexibility I find limited, uh, and I think we need to be, be motoring on now, realising that, that, that there's not as much flexibility as we would clearly want, uh, and let's get an, op uh, an outcome, uh, as David says, that, that gives us uh, a healthy uh, trading economic position with, with uh, the rest of the EU and, and move forward from there. All right, let's, let's, let's try and um, jump forward in time to that point and assume, assume this is done. You know, you've been in the Foreign Office, um, you, you've been in, in banking. Do you feel, sitting here, that, that Britain's position is going to be diminished by, what, by Brexit? I think that we've got to do our best to make sure it's not diminished. I, I don't think we should accept that it's automatically diminished mm -hmm. by leaving. Clearly the dynamic changes, and I think that's the key in these negotiations, is making sure that we come out of it in a position to... Uh, to, to grow, to, to, uh, to benefit from, from the independence that we'll have. So I don't think we should go in there feeling we are necessarily going to be diminished. I think we also have to be realistic and, and not uh, live in cloud cuckoo land that it's going to be easy. I think we have to choose, choose the battles that we, we fight carefully. So if we, you know, the foreign, what advice would you give the Foreign Secretary after Brexit, um, making Britain's foreign policy 
um, what has Britain got to offer? I mean, how, how would you go about positioning Britain after this fairly significant change in its... I think, it's, I think it's a very significant change. And it's easier for me, perhaps, because I've lived when Britain did have foreign policy, which was not completely bound by the European Union. And political cooperation was in its infancy when I was foreign secretary and previously when I was Navy minister. And we, we were a substantive presence around the world. We had a, we had a Navy apart from anything else. So uh, I, I think that we will restore a position that we've had for centuries. And I don't think, therefore, we're going out into the unknown. We took a bet, some of us, uh, I took that bet, that we would be strong enough to stop a United States of Europe emerging. I took Gates School's warning in 1962 very seriously. Uh, I was on his side, he was the politician I admired most, and he said, you know, we have to be aware of it. He was serious before he made his judgment that we should not get into the United States of Europe and therefore warned about the then common market, is he talked to Monet and he talked to Spark. He, he was a, a serious man. And I think myself that when we saw what Cameron had, that was the moment when I finally made up my decision, uh, that none of that was going to stop a United States of Europe emerging. And I think it has always been inherent in the Maastricht Treaty. And so that's the fundamental reason that I have left uh, in mind and in spirit and in, in, and in energy. I did my utmost to stop it happening. I wrote a book in 2012 which wanted to restructure Europe, which in those countries that didn't want to join the Europe, Eurozone would be allowed free movement, uh, would be able to stop free movement of work, labor. And that would be in the compromise. You could have brought Turkey into this wider mm. European setting. Mm. And for a moment, it looked as if it would work. The then editor of the Times supported it wholeheartedly and gave it terrific coverage. And I went to see Osborne, and he was courteous, and he let me go and talk to the Treasury officials. And I thought there was a chance that we would negotiate. And we didn't do a single thing. And I think it's a great tragedy. We, we need not have left the European Union. We could have changed it in a hardcore Eurozone, smaller than it currently is. And they will have to now try and do that. And a wider Europe. And it would have been uh, much, much, would have fitted Britain. And you think that we could have changed it uh, on freedom of movement? I think we could have, as long as it made you know, it very clear that the, yes, but we would have to. The argument would be, and I think there are economic arguments why, if you are in the Eurozone and if you're aspiring to be in the Eurozone, it's a good thing to have freedom of labor as well as freedom of movement of the people. And I think if we'd made that distinction economically, therefore, we always negotiated a very weak opt-out of Maastricht. I mean, it's in the annex, it's tucked away, and it never concedes that actual long-term Eurozone membership was an essential part of Europe. Uh, that, that annex 15, if you look at it, is pretty, pretty minuscule. And I've been on and on about Article 15, uh, uh, that, that appendix for, for years too. We stopped thinking inside the EU of other alternatives and we allowed ourselves to be 
Time after time, the Foreign Office went into a negotiating position all through the first decade of this century with the right negotiating position. And we conceded and gave it up. That was Tony Blair's style in Europe. And it was understandable because he is basically a federalist. And this is the problem, is the undisclosed federalism of many key players in this history, whether it's official or diplomatic level. I mean, Heath was a federalist. Roy Jenkins was a federalist. Heseltine's a federalist. Perfectly reputable position, let me say. I have complete respect for it, and I understand it. But, I mean, my closest right. friend was Michel Rocard. We argued about it from 1966 till he died uh, very soon after my birthday, and uh, after the referendum. I went to Europe, I went to Paris to argue the case about on the European Movement program, in which he was saying Britain should get out. And I was saying Britain had to get out. All right. Well, um, I mean, you're not a federalist, and you've, you've explained why you want us to uh, to leave, as we seem to be doing. Um, if we jump forward to that time, and you're giving advice to the foreign secretary, um, what would you? How do how do you um, how do you position Britain after this? We're out of our we're out of the European Union. Um, we're um, you know, we're arm's length from, from all the discussions about foreign policy going on there. How, how would you start? Well, we're really, we're really doing it, and so we should. We're already distancing ourselves from some aspects of European foreign policy, which we don't agree with, or security policy, and quite rightly so. So we're at the moment, and let's hope we continue to have nothing to do, whatever, with the European defence arrangement. It's flawed. It is damaging to NATO. We can't stop it. And therefore, we don't have to be hostile to it, and we shouldn't use any votes in the next uh, uh, period until March 2000, uh, 2019 to block it. It's going to happen. They must be allowed to do that and without our resistance. But we, meanwhile, are doing what we should do, which is taking a bigger role in NATO, taking the hard defense roles, and with 800 troops in Estonia, we have got to increase our defense budget. It pains me. I want to transform the health service. But I believe in, David and I agreed with it, and both of us were, found it difficult, given other priorities, that we should raise our percentage of spending on defense of uh, 2% to 2.5% over the next four to five years. We should start now. Hmm. And it's, it's one of the striking bits of this book. As you say that, you said, look, look the ar army's too small. We really can't do... Um, the things that we want to do in foreign policy uh, with that. Um, at the same time, you put a lot of weight on Britain being a member of the United Nations, of NATO, mm. of, of, of all these things. But what, what's the role you really see for us in those organisations? I think, I think that you, know, you asked how, how we maintain our position in the world. I think Britain has uh, a great deal of respect around the world for what it's able to do militarily uh, on the defence side. But we've got to, to reinforce that with, with the resources to, to keep on in that way. It's not going back to you know, the, the days of a, a Navy that's operating around the world. It, it's, it's being selective, focusing on what we're good at. But Britain is good at, at hard defence. I think NATO sees us as a core member. The US respects us for being there as a partner. And I think that we have to, if, if we are going to make a success of this, that is, that is one of the, the, the areas in which we, we've got the track record and should be continuing to play. And that... It involves a cost. And do you think there's public support for that? I think uh, there's... We're, we're in this period after, you know, with the memory of, of Iraq and Afghanistan, so recent it's barely a memory. Um, where, where do you uh, think I, think I, I think you're absolutely right. It, it's, it's challenging. There's been some 
pretty disastrous interventions in, in recent history. That doesn't mean there is no need for interventions in the future, but we have to be very careful of what the nature of those interventions are, how they're conducted, what, what authority they're, they're done under. It, it, it's not going to go away mm. just because um, some, some mistakes were made, in, some very serious mistakes, calamitous mistakes we've made in the past. doesn't mean we should not be willing to uh, intervene when it's necessary. And aid, where, where are you both on the 0.7% and, and dividend? Well, this is the most, I think, perhaps, for the, the, other than the very specialised, the most important part of the book. I mean, I didn't understand the National Security Council, and so I took it on myself to take that part of the book for a while because David had some understanding of it, I had none. And I think, on balance, this is a very important and good innovation in British foreign policy started well, the, the National Security Council National or, Security. Or, or DFID? National Security, Security Council. Council, yes. I personally think it was always a great mistake to take uh, overseas development away from the Foreign Office, but that's happened. Hmm. And so no, to advocate bringing it back was foolish. Hmm. But if you study carefully what the government has been doing over the last uh, nearly seven years, you see a, a process of bringing DFID and the Foreign Office very closely together within the National Security Council. And mechanism for doing it, I thought it was very interesting that uh, Boris Johnson went with um, Mr. Patel to Nigeria. And you also have a Minister of State now doing in both roles. But more important, there is, and there will be, transfers from the uh, aid budget honourably because it is helping poverty, particularly in unstable, poor countries. You cannot expect a country like us to put our Ministry of Defence spending into that area of stability within thing uh, when it's got so many other calls on it. And therefore, within the NSC, and we spell it out very clearly, there are a lot of complex measures now for transferring of resources to where it should be of course, the criteria there is linked to poverty in the countries. Mm. So you are not changing the 0.7%. You wouldn't get it through Parliament anyhow. You are changing it in the context of your national security apparatus. And you will see, I believe, a much better allocation of that 0.7% for the purposes of poverty than what we're seeing. And let's face it, the DFID has been a disaster in terms of where it spent money very badly. It takes great chunks of this money just go off to international agencies without anywhere. The World Bank, the EU itself, without, all this kind of thing. Sometimes good ones and mm. things, but without enough things. On the other hand, there are aspects of DFID's development, which is far from disastrous. It's actually very innovative and very uh, substantial. So it's you get rid of the disaster areas and build up on those areas of DFID that be, but there's a sort of glazed look that comes across some politicians and they make their reputations on the Tory party actually more almost than the left in thinking that what matters is this magical figure of 0.7%. So you dole it out right when near the end of the budget regardless. It's, it, it, it has got to come under control. And it, it needs, of course, changes in its civil service personnel too. But it, I think... Uh, the framework that's there now is very important and actually uh, beginning to work. Mm. You talk about uh, quite a bit in the book about the values underpinning British foreign policy. You say, look, we don't want to be um, extreme about this. You know, that, um, uh, obviously, you have to deal with the real world, but still, there are values that Britain is known for, and so on. 
But the, you know, one retort to that might be um, after Brexit, uh, much in the way we've been discussing, Britain is really going to have to concentrate on trade deals. And aren't trade deals going to drive its foreign policy? I think trade deals are clearly going to be a key part of, of what we're doing going forward. But I think it's got to be underpinned by a wider, as we argue in the book, by a wider set of values that we, we live up to. I don't think you're going to create uh, or, or be focused on trade deals that are going to be undermining a stance on, on, on human rights, etc. I think that we've got to get the balance. I think I, I agree with David on the, the, the importance of the NSC and certainly having you know, just come out of, of, uh, of Whitehall um, sort of six months ago, seeing how or the need for, for all departments to be working together and being coordinated. So it's not, it's not a foreign policy, it's driven by our trade policy solely, that, that people are pulling it all together, that the DFID's involvement is in there as well. Uh, I think there is a big issue around what happens in the middle ground. DFID very clearly and very rightly focused on, on poverty, 50% of the funding going to uh, failed and fragile states. But what happens to the economic growth in the, in the middle country, the countries that have moved, thankfully, out of DFID's remit. How do we make sure, and that's where, if you look at where the uh, the priorities are for the government in terms of where they see new markets, a lot of those are in, in countries that are high growth countries but are still pretty low levels of development and how we bring foreign policy, trade policy, etc., together uh, with, uh, in line with our underlying values to make success in those markets. So certainly for me, that that's, that's one of the key challenges going forward and one that I think we need a lot more coordination and, and joined up foreign policy uh, in the future. Mm. And, and self-determination, where, where are you on this? Are you in your discussion of, uh, of the principles of, of um, British foreign policy, um, you know, if, if people really want to have their own country or really can't stand another group of people that they're coupled together with in a nation, should they be allowed to set up their own country? Uh, I come from where those two gentlemen do. And the principle of self-determination is a is a challenging one, and I think you it has to be negotiations, and, and you cannot. I think the principle, the ultimate principle of self determination, if you're a reductio ad absurdum, it doesn't work. I think we have to have pragmatism there, and I think we have to have you know, negotiations. And we spent a lot of time together negotiating with, with uh, on the very because issue of self determination, Yugoslavia. Yeah. Um. Yes, your views on Scotland while we're at it. Well, I've been a very long-standing devolutionist. Mm. I was converted mm. by John Mackintosh mm. within six months of coming into Parliament. Mm. But it took me a long time to really understand it. I had a, an adoption bill as a private member, and at one press conference launching of it, they said, well, will Scotland be involved? And I said, yes, of course. 27 clauses later, Scotland was incorporated. I had no idea of the proper age of fiscal. I mean, the ignorance of many MPs, certainly in my generation in the 60s, of Scotland was ignorant. But I'm Welsh, I'm through and through. I'm not got in a, a, a single part of English blood in me. So I, I'm a federal. I, will, I, I believe this is also an opportunity for us when the dust settles to develop a federal UK and I th I've actually written about using the Bundesrat mechanism, not to have a separate parliament, which they all elected again, but with the elements within the federal grouping come together on constitutional questions in particular. I think the Bundesrat is a very clever and a good way of dealing with 
the vast differences in the German lander, which are very much reflected in our country. So don't let's go back to regionalism and forced regionalism, spending your whole time telling the Cornish they have to link up with the Devon and Somerset, who they loathe more than most other counties, uh, and be much more flexible. And I think the Bundesrats have but uh, uh, interest in it in this thing, zero. I mean, you can get it on my own website, but I mean, we're, we're not capable of thinking yet uh, about... And, and, and it may, we're not going to have a debate about Scotland, but it may not prove very satisfying uh, to Scots bent on independence. Um, I think independence yeah. will be sorted out by the Scots, and I think they're already doing so. I think that Ruth Davidson's success has changed the dynamics. Of, I was up in Edinburgh, but I did go with my wife to the Bonnie Prince Charlie exhibition and the uh, Jacobites. I learnt a lot, and I left understanding why a lot of them do want independence. But then I have a belief that we, Wales was better ruled under King Llewellyn. All right, there's a depth of history we're not going to we're not going to bring into this. So I'm uh, uh, also Welsh, but I'm not going to claim that far back. Um, Let's get on to what Britain might or might not do after, after Brexit in its foreign policy. Because, I mean, what, what you've sketched out so far is, you know, uh, holding to its principles, you want a bigger, uh, a bigger military, um, which is itself expensive, even if it were supported by the public and so on. But what, it, what might it actually do? I mean, if you, if you take relations with um, Russia, where, David, you've, you've um, had extensive commercial experience, you make a very good case in this book for, look, don't give, give up with, on Russia yet, don't pick a fight with it, it's really very recent that it's been uh, for, um, changing. What do you think Britain actually can do in Russian well, I think Russian relations. I keep on wanting to avoid you postponing all these decisions until March 2019. We are already taking a heavy burden by deciding that we're going to put it in all the most dangerous countries, Estonia. And we are sending a message to Russia by that. But then we look at Ukraine. Why did Ukraine start? One of the factors, and the most important one, was the appalling EU-Ukraine agreement packed through of European defense stuff, which was bound to be inflammatory to the Kremlin and gave them anyhow an opportunity. That was as almost as bad as Munich in terms of defense. We have had a war which has had already considerable casualties. It could have been a very dangerous war. I'm sorry, war. it was almost as bad as Munich in, in what sense? I mean, you, you, the you, sheer you, incompetence of coming to a negotiation with a strong power with as weak a hand and as foolish an idea as Chamberlain, the EU came into a negotiation effectively with the Russians because they were watching the Ukraine agreement with great care and we took not a blind bit of notice of what they were wanting to do. And I've talked to people, where well, was the British Foreign Office? Most of them admit they were somehow not involved. And then you go to Germany, where were they? Well, they admit their eye was off the ball. We have this new structure of a, a sort of great foreign minister for Europe, totally inexperienced at that stage. Uh, I mean, she'd been there for four years, but I mean, it was a transfer, really, period with the new one coming through. This whole mechanism, which was told to us, was just coordination of foreign policies. We were told there were going to be no ambassadors. They would be, of course, they're now called ambassadors. No embassies. They are now embassies. This budget has right, risen. Right, that's, risen. that's European foreign policy. Yes, we're, it's we're, not we're a minor matter, yeah. though. Don't yeah. dismiss it. We're still in a war in Ukraine and people are still losing their lives. Mm -hmm. And we talk about Minsk. Minsk is frozen mm -hmm. and impossible. 
it has to be changed. And in my view, the only way you will get out of the problem of all this dry tinder of border disputes in Europe, and it's not just East Ukraine, it's uh, Transnistria, it's Crimea, it's uh, South Ossetia, it's Abkhazia, even Karabakh. if you were really brave, you would make Kosovo, and put all of this into a border settlement. You know, this is what China and India have done over the last few months, thank goodness. You have to look at these border disputes, and they are linked, in this case, a very long border, that you make concessions here and you make concessions there. And I think it should be five plus one, which did very well over Iran. And you should negotiate with all the people who then, of course, the parties. It may take four or five years to clear up all these border disputes around it. And in that context, we have to grapple with Georgia and Ukraine and not being part of NATO. I'm entranced among several things about the idea of all those border disputes, as you're calling them, being settled in four or five years. But um, you're saying, on the one hand, we shouldn't provoke, or, or we're wrong to provoke Russia by we're bringing... We've yeah, already provoked Russia yeah, yeah. by putting in 800 troops into Estonia. That's not a minor matter for them. That is a, 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 a very very clear view. One which a member of the European Union and of NATO, We've Estonia, wants, wants, wants us to take in its, in, in its defense. Sorry? Estonia is, supports that. Yes, um, of course. Um, but I mean, Russia know, doesn't support no, it. No, it, it doesn't. But what, what is the stance you want us to take to Russia? And what in particular do you think Britain Well, I thought I told you. That? I think you should take a tough stance on a military matter like hmm. Estonia and a more diplomatic manner on the whole question of the Crimea and Ukraine, and ditch Minsk, which is getting nowhere, and involve it in a more international setting. Some people say, well, why should China be there? I think there are a lot of evidence in the last 20 years of a slow but important uh, independence of view in China in the Security Council vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And I don't think they always hold their views okay. There may be some border disputes that they've got, but you have to live with that. A lot of us have got border disputes. We in the UK have border disputes. And so I think that uh, use the international framework. OSCE has mm. been tried, won't work. So that's one of our suggestions. It may not be, but you could start now. And in a way, we are starting now. And we may have to increase our commitment uh, to the three Baltic states. Mm. We are, look, Gromyko had a row with me in 1977 about the Baltic states. He told me in Moscow in September, when we'd had a seven-year period of no contact, that by signing the Helsinki Final Act, we had given up our claim that they were independent states. And he was mm -hmm. tough. And then later, in a private conversation, when only using his interpreter, he came back to the same issue. I don't think they have shifted in their attitude to it at all. They genuinely, many of these people, believe that uh, it is wrong that the Baltic states are independent. Well, they've got to live with reality. And that is an issue on which there can be no movement or no give at all in our policy. And that's not a bad idea to have a few areas where there is no give and other areas where there is give, because that allows dialogue. Okay, well, we might come back that, uh, to that in questions and how you, how you uh, distinguish one, one from the other. Um, the Middle East. What do you think of Britain after Brexit? Uh, I'll give you the larger army um, of military that, you, uh, that you've asked for in this book. What, what do you think our role, though, can be? 
and should be. I think that's yeah, the question of should be. I think that, that we're not saying Britain heads back into the Gulf on mm. its own. I think that there's, there's been, there's clearly uh, uh, a very traumatic situation ongoing in the Middle East at the moment. Hopefully we're going to see the, 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 the defeat of ISIS, at least militarily. That is not going to remove the problem. I think that we, there is some very positive uh, steps with the agreement with Iran on uh, the, the, the nuclear issue there. I think we've got to make where, sure where that... Britain was where Britain was very yeah. much involved in the negotiations. I think Britain has been at the forefront of trying to rebuild the, the relationship with Iran. Um, and again, this is where I see the need for, for a joined-up government. We see a lot of talk about we, we build trading relationships with Iran, but none of the banks will touch the funds because they're still scared of American sanctions. So there's bits and pieces of the jigsaw, and that, that's very fragile. I think Iran did make a, a, a bold move to, to reach that agreement and is expecting something in return. And we've got to make sure that Iran is kept kept on board. And I think say Britain Britain has uh, has developed its relations there. What we've got to avoid, and what we, we, we say in the book, is is getting involved in a split between Sunni and, and Shia in in well, the we are. Middle we East. Have, well, we, we've been taking sides. Both, taking both, both so, well, sides. I, I um, think that one, one should continue to be involved in 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 dealing with both sides and not taking sides. And uh, I think this is this is the the, the danger that we are to some you know, definitely we are on the the periphery of. What, what is happening there between the, the Sunni and Shia. We've got to try and play a constructive piece, but we should not be sucked into the middle of that. Uh, and we've got to keep the, the, the lines open to, to both sides. I think Britain, again, it's, it's had that whole historical relationship with the region. I, I lived there for eight years. It's very well respected in the region. We've got great contacts throughout it. And, and, and that is something we can uh, make use of regardless of whether we're in the EU or not. And, and we should be doing well, let's just pick up on this point before we go to questions, and I think there'll be quite a lot. I mean, what are the opportunities you see for Britain having left the European Union in, in its foreign policy that aren't there right now as we're sitting here? Well, I think they are here right now. So, I mean, the British have made the decision. We are leaving the European mm -hmm. Union. I'm not prepared to have a conversation with you on the basis. Yeah, we haven't well, yet, so we're sitting here as part of the European Union. So I'm saying, when we've left, what are the opportunities? We are in, a, we are in an international agreement about mm. separation, mm. having had a referendum decision. Mm. So I'm not in a conversation with you about whether or not we're going to go. I, I'm not having that, those conversations. I'm just saying and when we've left. In, yeah. in that situation, it's perfectly yeah. right for the government to start to develop a Brexit mm. post-Brexit policy. And one of the areas which we deal with in the book is the fact we are built uh, two large aircraft carriers. Mm. We made a decision, uh, the coalition government, not to equip them to carry heavy, very sophisticated bombers so they would be on a par with the US uh, uh, Air Force and uh, uh, Fleet Air Arm, effectively. But these are not useless. Uh, vehicles. They are potentially very powerful uh, for a medium-sized power to influence world events. And one of the things, I was on the Carnegie Commission on Conflict, and we unanimously, in a very diverse group, came out for the fact we must have a capacity within the UN to have a UN intervention force, both in using airfields and ships in a normal way, but also in maritime. And I think that these two aircraft carriers could and should become the basis for a UN intervention force 
It's planned for that. It has plans for 250 Marines. It has a mix of helicopters and aircraft. Uh, the aircraft are too sophisticated for most routes, but it, the um, helicopters could be uh, improved and increased. And it's going to be stationed in Oman. It could have been useful if we have another Libya, but let's hope we don't have another Libya. But it, it could be useful as it was over Sierra Leone. So we'll still have a British role for it. I don't think it should be uh, used in super sophisticated fighting because I don't think it's equipped for it. But for example, it would be spend time with the Australian Navy, the New Zealand Navy, maybe the Indian Navy. If France wants to put in an aircraft carrier into it, it would make, make it much more UN and wider. We would say advantages in dealing with it. Now, this is a new way of seeing it. If, however, you allow the hard-headed, uh, if you like, I would say foolish people who want to see it paraded with the U.S. Navy uh, around the South China Seas and sailing close to all the new Chinese islands, then I think that is the wrong view. So we, we're clear about this. You have to make it clear to the admirals now. You are not going to do that. We are going to specialize as we already are, legally and diplomatically in the law of the sea. We will use our skills wherever possible to sort that problem out in the South China Sea. But this aircraft carrier could be deployed now. If you wanted to show a symbol of support for Japan, you would sail it into uh, Japanese waters. Mm. And we don't exclude our involvement with Korea because of our past history. But we do think if you're going to improve your relations with China, and we have a long legacy, America has a much better record with China than we have, to add to all the problems of the past and the difficulties still there over Hong Kong with taking a big maritime role in asserting yourself around the South China Seas would be folly. But if you listen to some of the things that have been said by the Foreign Secretary and the Defence Secretary of in Australia a few weeks ago, you would think that that was it's going to be its main purpose. Mm. So there needs to be a hell of a lot of thinking inside the NSC on this issue. And the NSC is a good forum for that. that those, helicopter, those helicopter carrier uh, and troops are potentially a weapon, uh, but also potentially a diplomatic tool. And their deployment needs to be considered in a breadth of our foreign policy. We spent the money, use them, and use them intelligently. All right, finally, and just before we go to questions, what should we make of talk of a military solution in, to the North Korea problem? Well, David and I, all we said was this problem will still be with us, but this problem has been with us quite a long mm. time. I read uh, Tony Blair's justification for Trident renewal, which has never appealed to me. But I think that those people, and he was hinting at it, though not necessarily saying it, in 2006, you know, Korea was coming up on the agenda mm. then. Mm. And he talked about the uncertain world. And that has always been the best case for uh, Trident renewal, that you can't predict things. So um, my own view is this is an American decision. They will not ask us for what mm. they're going to do, nor should they. I just guard against getting into automatic belief that any use of force is wrong. I think there comes a moment in making deterrence a serious strategy, and international diplomacy 
serious in using this UN. Nobody could argue that America hasn't been patient on this issue. No can be argue that the UN has been used wisely and, and well so far. But there will come a time, it may be, if they carry out a uh, missile launch over or dropping short of Guam, that for America is unacceptable. Guam is a part of America in effect now. Uh, you are automatically an American citizen if you were uh, uh, in Guam, and they are not going to accept, after all the history of Guam, taking, losing it, taking it in the Second World War, they're not going to accept that, and nor should they, in my view. So I don't think you can rule out, as we talk now, that uh, General Matisse will come to President Trump and agree that the diplomatic line has run out and that there has to be force. And I hope they don't use nuclear weapons as the first part. But remember Eisenhower threatened uh, the use of nuclear weapons in 1953 through Nehru to Shu and Lao, and he claimed that there was a part of North Korea where he could see a tactical use of a nuclear weapon to show that the Americans were serious. But I, I would... I would risk going in with conventional weapons, but they've got these new bombusters that they Amer used in America Americans. Does. They used in Afghanistan, and I think they were testing out: are they capable of penetrating nuclear uh, installations that have been built in underground and in tunnels? I don't know the result of it, but I do hope that we can deal with this without going. I I have great aversion to crossing the nuclear threshold under almost any circumstances. Thank you for that. All right, uh, let's have some questions. Right there in the middle. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure if this is the right forum to talk about, obviously, the, the domestic impact of Brexit, but uh, I'd just like to ask Lord Owen if he regrets at all being... Uh, on the same side as people like Nigel Farage and does he worry about the possible impact of Brexit domestically the difficulties that may re result from Brexit in the NHS and social care construction agriculture lots of the British economy and also the uh, the, the, the rise in hate crime which has been inextricably linked to uh, Brexit vote thank you would you like to say who you are uh, sorry I'm uh, Vincent Burke I'm a civil servant for the next two weeks <laughs> Great. I'm going to come to both of you on that. David, can I come to you first? David, I clearly, as, as a Remain voter, I, I have concerns about what uh, what, what the impact is on on uh, the, the domestic situation here. But I, I think the premise that anyone who who voted to leave should all be lumped together in in one big pot and. Uh, 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 Given or, or ascribe the same beliefs and the same uh, rationale is, is is a completely wrong place to to be starting from. Uh, I think that uh, uh, you know that 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 just oversimplifies the situation. I, I agree. I, I haven't come here to talk about Brexit. Uh, thank God we're talking about something different. But uh, this whole idea of linking you with Nicholas Farage, anyhow, Nick Farage was elected. His party actually happened to win uh, the largest uh, number in the last European elections. But it, it, to be frank about it, that's, there's a level of politics which you shouldn't stoop to. Uh, 
I've just been writing about the wartime cabinets of 1940. Uh, you go into some situations in which party politics is not a major issue. You come together, as Greenwood and Attlee did with Halifax and Neville Chamberlain, who they totally despised in the country's good, and Churchill had asked them in. And I think that we've got to be prepared to look at many more foreign policy issues. When I was foreign secretary, I was, there was a faction of Tories who were totally opposed to anything uh, that we were doing in Rhodesia, in uh, southwest Africa, as it was called, Namibia, or in South Africa. And they were basically supported white settlers and uh, were an obstructive force. But that did not involve their foreign spokesman, whether it was John Davis or whether it was Peter Carrington. And there was a constant dialogue. He knew where we were in our negotiations. I would talk to them uh, regularly. And there's been a long tradition of British politics that foreign policy is not taken down into the party political uh, vendettas or fights or maneuvers unless it has to be. If there are real and genuine differences, and there obviously are over Brexit, I respect that many of my friends are voters, many of my family are voters. All I think is that you have a democratic choice before you. Because we have not been able to grapple with this issue, Parliament chose a referendum. Parliament abdicated from their decisions by having a referendum. We did it in 75 and we've done it again. If you do that, then you have to listen to that verdict. And I'm afraid I'm old-fashioned. And the verdict comes up and the finger goes, you walk. You may not think you've touched the ball. But this is a British tradition that I have seen destroyed almost in the last year. How much longer is it going to go on? How much longer are we going to fight against the referendum? How much longer are the elite, of which I am one, are unprepared to accept the verdict of the non-elite? Because that is what's happened. So I pose it back to you. Uh, I don't think I didn't actually go on a program, platform with Farage, but I might well have done if I'd been asked. I went on with the locally elected MEP for the West Country, and I had no trouble with it either in my conscience. He made an extremely good speech uh, in a meeting in Plymouth, and Plymouth voted 60-40 to come out. I'm a Plymouthian born and bred. That is a factor which isn't populism. It's democratic. You listen to those people who are closest to you, to whom my own political life is in debt, who voted me for 26 years their MP, and I'm glad to be on their side. I don't feel I'm alien to anything of any of my traditions. I'm a strong European. I did my best to change the direction of Europe and failed. Thank you. Suddenly loads of questions. Right, uh, it's come here. Uh, John Andrews, <coughs> for me at The Economist. John Andrews, formerly of the business work. Yes. Um, could you just, uh, both Davids actually, uh, give an idea of how you see NATO developing? I ask the question because of um, the initial view of Donald Trump that NATO is obsolete. But also, I think if you look at perhaps the, in a sense, the sorry record of NATO involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan and now the tensions that are developing with Turkey. Oh, and also, um, because you mentioned, uh, David, um, the, the European Defence Initiative. 
Okay. About, I mean, I, th I think that, uh, as we argue, NATO is a, is a key pillar. Uh, I think I, I share David's views on the risks of diluting that by bringing in a separate European defence environment. I think NATO, I think, you know, we were, I alluded to it earlier, that just because some of the interventions in the recent past have been uh, yeah, have, have, have gone wrong, uh, mistakes have been made. I don't think that means that NATO should not be involved in looking at how one can intervene for the best, for the good in the future. And NATO is well equipped to do this. If any organization is going to be capable of doing it, I think NATO is, is that organization. Uh, I think it's important that it brings a group of countries together. We're not going down unilateral routes. Uh, you asked about uh, you know, the impact of, of what Trump had said coming in. Uh, I think we've seen some change in that. I think that's one, I think we argued it in the book, that one of the roles of Britain should be making the argument to the Americans, to Trump, that NATO is important and should be kept. We've put, put, put the argument here that the UK should be paying more for NATO. I think we, the UK should be making the case that everyone should be paying their dues to, to, to NATO. Uh, uh, and I think that, you know, certainly I share the American view that uh, the rest of Europe should be, be paying up for its defence. In 1967, I was uh, a Labour MP and outside the government, and the junta took place in Greece, and I thought they should be thrown out of NATO. Ten years later, I was Foreign Secretary, and I believed that it was a fantastic thing what NATO had done in contributing to bringing both Portugal and uh, Spain and Greece uh, uh, to a state where we could bring them into the European Union. And I was very much involved in that enlargement at a meeting of the foreign ministers at Leeds Castle in early 77 and went to Spain with it. So I believe that NATO has a very important role, which is way beyond just its military aspects and very important in foreign policy. And I think that's why it will be a very good vehicle for us to take very seriously, as well as the Security Council. Now, um, I've already said that talk is easy. It will only be taken seriously in NATO with money. And if we put down 0.5% over five years, that will put us into a very powerful position. And it will mean that we will have weight in Washington. They will see that we are showing... After all, the business about um, us being freeloaders didn't come from Trump. It came from Obama. And furthermore, it's right. It's a completely correct expression of what we are in. So we've got to face up to this. And, uh, you know, we're talking about 2.5%. We were spending 9% all through the 50s when we had many, many other things wanting to put to uh, help our country. And most other European countries were paying a pittance. And we've done it before and we'll have to do it again. But it won't be such large money. We took far too a big peace dividend out of the fall of Berlin Wall. That's the truth of the matter. So then you come to the other questions of NATO. I agree with David. I mean, all these interventions have failed, and they have all failed, in my view. Libya, Iraq, and Afghanistan. There was a route which could have been a success. The military invasion of uh, Afghanistan, for example, which was a CIA dollars in suitcases as well as military, was an extremely effective intervention. It was the belief, the, the, the godforsaken belief that you could pacify 
Afghanistan as an external power. I went to Afghanistan when I was 21, and I never believed that this thing would work. But on Iraq, if we had followed the advice of the chief of the American army, we would have put very many more troops in, and he was brushed aside, as was also happened in this country. We should have followed the advice of putting people into uh, Iraq and, and, and when Baghdad went wrong. It was the chief of defense staff who argued against it. Bless have overruled him. And on Libya, there were many areas where we didn't... The Americans made it possible for us, and then President Medvedev didn't veto the resolution. And what did we do to the Russians? We ignored them completely and did, in fact, act as a vehicle for um, regime change, which was the one thing that was excluded in the resolution. Um, so we've got to look at, and that's why this book couldn't be written, without quite a lot of historical looking back at where things failed. But they weren't, the interventions themselves weren't necessarily failures. We've got to learn from them. And therefore, I think NATO still remains with it. We saw in the Balkans, you need the command and control mechanism of NATO if you're going to intervene. All the time we were trying to make uh, people in U UN blueberries and blue helmets take on tasks that their own military commanders didn't want them to do. And we pushed and pushed. And the business of the fall of Srebrenica was predicted disaster against the advice of every UN military and NATO military advisor that if you wanted to have safe havens in those five areas, you needed 31,000 troops. And they barely provided an extra 6,000. And some of those were Bengali troops in tropical uniform coming into Beirut, uh, into, where is it? I get old, you forget. What was oh, it? Sarajevo. It was Bihaj. Oh, yes. Bihaj. In Bihaj, with tropical <laughs> kit. And they had to have a, a runaround amongst all the NATO forces giving up their own uh, warm clothing. Now, there are things to learn. But uh, just finally on Turkey, we must bend over backwards to keep Turkey in NATO. And it's very difficult. And our public opinion will be very hostile to it. And it's getting worse, not better. But if they're going to now, as it appears from what Merkel said, be deprived of associate membership or told that they're not going to automatically lead to membership, then the NATO link and our human rights and our young idealistic and activists will get very, very angry about this. It's going to be very hard to hold them, but we, it's a, it would be a great defeat for NATO if uh, Turkey walked away. Let's take another few questions together because we're coming to the end. Um, here and I'm going to go over there and then here on the aisle by the camera. And I'm Miranda Curtis. I'm a trustee here at the Institute for Government, but I'm also the lead non-executive director on the board of the Foreign Office. I'd like to move away perhaps from historical policy issues and talk about the general challenges of delivering foreign policy after Brexit. Um, we're currently in a situation where it's very clear that there's a quite a brutal turf war going on between established and new departments in Whitehall for talent, for resources, and for budget. At a time when it's going to be essential to present um, a, a, a global Britain that is coherent in bringing together aid, trade, diplomacy, security, and defense in a way that is both effective 
and cost efficient. What do you see as the challenges for government in general and for the Foreign Office in particular in delivering on that promise? Thank you for that. Let's go uh, back to here. Um, thank you. My name's uh, Mark Norris. I'm a lawyer. I focus on export finance. And actually, my question follows on from the previous question. I, th I think the historical aspect really matters. I mean, as an economy, we are sitting on a massive current account deficit. And I fear that uh, post-Brexit, that actually foreign policy will move to the Treasury and the uh, international financial markets, given the size of our current account deficit. And looking back, it's going to be, I wonder, I, I fear that our foreign policy, particularly if we go down a military route, will just be a rerun of Suez, where the, the financial markets went against us. Okay, Th thanks very much. And the third one here on the other. And real apologies to everyone, I can't get in, but we, I hope you join us for drinks uh, outside afterwards and there's a chance you, to talk you, there. You've talked a lot about hard power. Um, I wonder about soft power and whether, in particular, is this a sensible moment to be cutting the budget of the British Council and the BBC World Service? Uh, I'm John Pete from The Economist. Okay, great. So we've got turf battles in Whitehall. Will our foreign policy be made by the Treasury or other parts? And this last one. Uh, David, let me start with you. Um, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of thinking on this and having sort of been, been, been in the, the Foreign Office 20 odd years ago and come back into Whitehall just a few years ago and, and seen the differences. I mean, I think the Foreign Office has been emasculated. Uh, I, I think that the spread, partly I think this is, was driven by Brussels in that so much of the foreign policy was being driven by Brussels, so much other policy as well. Many other departments quite rightly uh, were involved, but how that has been coordinated uh, not necessarily in the best of ways. I think you, you mentioned the, the way a lot of the talent, certainly from my understanding, a lot of people sort of the hardened on the, the EU side and the Foreign Office have moved into uh, uh, DEXU. There's a lot of um, pressure on DIT to get the right sort of people in there. So absolutely, and, and you see the turf wars, uh, and I think that is, is something that one would hope an NSC structure should be able to overcome. I think that was certainly, when we did our research on that, it was perhaps disappointing in the conversations we had with people in government or had been close to it to say, well, how effective is the NSC? How do you regard it? Is it seen as a key player? I, th I think the uh, the jury is definitely out in how key a role is playing. But whenever, absolutely, there's, there's, there's a lot of different elements to foreign policy now. It's not just for the foreign office. They can sit there in isolation. But I think there has to be an effective executive body that delivers the foreign policy, I personally think that should be the Foreign Office. And I think at the minute we've got too many disparate uh, organisations uh, or, or elements who are allowed, I think, to make their own policy. Or, or, uh, and and the, foreign, the Foreign Office, again, just reading uh, a lot of the, the criticisms of the Foreign Office of lack of expertise, lack of language training, etc., etc., and, and it feeds into what you were saying about the, the soft power. Uh, we had a discussion around how much we should be mentioning soft power. I, I do believe that there's, it is one of the strengths of Britain that we have got a reputation around the world that is based on, on softer as well as going down a military route. I, I don't think we're advocating that Britain's foreign policy should be based solely on a military route. That, that's not what we're saying. There's a, an element for a, uh, a, a foreign policy that has a bit of backbone to it and 
if you want that backbone, you've got you've got to uh, put some resource into it. But I think we need a much better coordinated foreign policy, and, and I think the Foreign Office should be the, the organisation that's doing that. And again, in my own time, the, the drift to the Cabinet Office or into number 10 for driving foreign policy, the Foreign Office was, was seen as the admin side of foreign policy rather than the, uh, the, uh, the driving force, the people who should be thinking up the longer-term strategies. And so one of what you know, we've been said, well, there's, there's not many concrete proposals in this book for foreign policy. Well, foreign policy by its nature, and certainly for a country like the UK, is to a, a fair extent reactive. But you've, the way to do it properly is to know how you're going to react before it actually happens and have that longer-term thinking, which I think we've lost. Um, again, uh, certainly talking to maybe some of the older Foreign Office hands who have, have left the ship, that, that's certainly the view uh, that has become too much immediate. And, and you've got to get the balance right. It's absolutely right. We should be using all the digital communications, etc., etc., but not to the expense of not having a longer-term vision of where we're going and how we're going to deal with the multiple challenges that are going to come up along the way. Thank Sorry, you. No, no. And David, from Whitehall to soft power. Oh, I hate the term. I wish it never been invented. I don't... <laughs> I don't power. I'm, I'm it's soft totally, power. Totally, totally I, 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 I never use it. And I've got... Uh, I know he's made a reputation for himself at Harvard over this, but uh, all I can say is be foreign secretary and come under the criticism from successive governments almost wherever you go about the nature of overseas broadcasting. You don't think it's soft power in fighting for its independence and its uh, thing. I believe that for, uh, telling the truth on, across the airwaves and now the television and every other way, and we ought to be using um, a social medium, is, is, is a tough policy and ought to be bloody well pursued. And so I don't understand this whole thing at soft power. I've, I've got a lot of contempt for it. Uh, get rid of the whole, get rid of the subject, get rid of the subject and make what it exists hard-nosed and effective. And cultural diplomacy is, is a very important part of foreign policy, in my view. So then you come to the next question, which is, this question of what to do about culturally now inside the Foreign Office as you make the change. When we went into the EU, the permanent secretary who came in in 75, Sir Michael Palliser, was often criticised, but I think it was the right decision to put more and more of the really the cream and the people who were going to come up through the top, through uh, Brussels and through the EU machineries. That was the right policy at that time. Now <coughs> we should consciously put and more people than you need to have there, really, in order to be part of their education and part of their uh, backing. Now you need to do the same for both NATO uh, in Brussels and, um, above all, for the Security Council. So don't try and trim those down to be the last number of people who are absolutely vitally necessary. See it as a training ground and an important training ground for uh, people who are on a fast track. And so I think that would make a great deal of difference, get a real understanding of those two elements of foreign policy. And you need to be there, and you need to go there when you're young, and then again in your sort of middle grade. Um, and, and it's a necessity to spend time there. You don't understand it unless you're there. Um, and so that is something I would like to see um, dealing. Treasury running defense, it was ever so. Uh, but the first thing is, you have got to stop the chiefs of defence staff of the Navy, Air Force and Army. Uh, they have proved to pull back practically all the power that the politicians took away from them. And that is why our budget is an absolute disgrace. The more you look at that budget, 
That's one reason why you're going to have to spend more money. Otherwise, you're going to have a lot of very expensive cancellations. But the chief of defense staff must be more authoritative and have an infrastructure. So when they come in, they don't come in with their old army or navy friends. They come into a structure that is permanent that owns these procurement decisions and has to face up to them. Otherwise, you'll go on having a procurement policy that is a complete and absolute disregard for any of the realities of power and puts the Treasury into a very effective position because nobody else is going to control it. So that, I think, is absolutely vital. I think the NSC should make recommendations to uh, the Prime Minister about the powers of the Secretary of State, of the, of the Chief of Defence Staff. They are emasculated because they don't have the, the pillar that would go right up through to give them the knowledge of that. And if you talk to many of them, they'll tell you this. And then the other thing which I think that uh, you would have to try and look to matching the uh, Treasury is to build the Foreign Secretary's position up inside the NSC. He is, a part, the Prime Minister's got too many different things to deal with. And there's already signs of, like the National Security Advisor is off around the world with the Prime Minister. That is a very onerous task. When the Prime Minister is out of the country, it's their best time to be in the country, building up and doing all that is necessary. I think that needs to be put on a more structured basis. And we make suggestions that if there is a change in the way a Prime Minister handles the NSC, then that should be reportable to the uh, overall parliamentary committee that is uh, uh, supervising studying the NSC. At the moment, it's got a former foreign secretary as the chair, and it's mixed lords and commons. And I think that committee needs to be made more powerful. I think the national security advisor is a tricky role. I, I think that it... It needs to be independent of the Foreign Secretary, and yet they need to have a good working relationship. But the Foreign Secretary needs to have a more of a role there. But then the other thing comes into being is what happens when they speak frankly, and then it's described as an NSC decision. It seems to me NSC decisions should be unanimous. And when they're made unanimously, they're announced unanimously. When they don't make a decision, and the Prime Minister wants to have a different view, he needs to go to the cabinet, and then it's a cabinet decision. I think there should be a distinction made. It's no use having these people there, and I think Pauline Neville-Jones did a very good job. Uh, my first experience of a mixed committee was when we went to see Carter, Jim Callahan uh, and I, and he came back convinced, and rightly so, that Carter was going to take a real interest in all nuclear questions, civil nuclear as well, and uh, pr proliferation and things like that. And so we formed a special committee to look after it. I was chair of it, but Bondi, Professor Bondi, the, the defense scientist, served on it as of right. And it, politicians are completely different when you put them in a mixed meeting where the civil servants are there as of right. And that's the strength of the NSC. All three of MI5, MI6, and the GCHQ are there. And therefore, don't overload it with lots of machinery. And then receive some criticisms of General Richards, you know, of the NSC getting involved in whether 150 people should go to Afghanistan. And even Nick Clegg says, I don't think we should be discussing this. So it's it's also too linked to what was the Cabinet Office. So 
but it's a very, we make our criticisms of the NSC and suggestions in a spirit of thinking it's a good organization and we're not trying to demolish it or destroy it, but to try and make it better. But I mean, I have not any experience of it, but uh, looking at it. And then finally, I, I, I would say this, is that the Foreign Office has had a lot of knocks. And uh, I mean, when I went to the Balkans, I was staggered at the decisions that the Foreign Secretary was referring to number 10 that I would have dreamt of referring to number mm. 10. And we have got to stop that. And it is as blunt as this. You can put somebody as Foreign Secretary, as Prime Minister, uh, who you, don't dis you disagree with, and the result would be disastrous. You have got to put a Foreign Secretary who you trust. You can put a strong figure in your political thing as Home Secretary, or you can put them as Ch even Chancellor Exchequer, although that's difficult. Basically, the Chancellor and the Foreign Secretary need to get on with the Foreign with the Prime Minister, and they should travel together more. I mean, I, sometimes I mean we do need to have a visit to Moscow, and the best visit to Moscow would come if the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary went. And I think you could have some, sometimes it's a good idea to be operating together. And we will miss the contact, which I used to have with Callaghan, particularly visiting Europe. We never went to a European Council or a meeting without traveling together in the same plane. Now it's considered sort of strange if they travel together. We've got to, if we now remove the contact that comes with the Foreign Secretary and the thing through Europe, we have to find ways of restoring its relationship. And it's uh, very important in my view. So this is all work in progress. It will take time. Not everything is wrong with the EU. There are policies which we support in the EU which will carry on during this period. We don't need to criticize them. We don't need to change them just because they were EU policies. But we do need, and fairly rapidly, and over the next few months, make some quite big changes in British foreign policy, anticipating that we'll be out in March 2019. Well, thank you very much indeed for that. It would risk um, not just extending this beyond people's uh, deadlines, but overshadowing the other fascinating things you said if I asked you if we had the right foreign secretary. So we can <laughs> leave that for another time. Thank you all very much indeed for coming. Uh, um, thank you. Apologies to those of you who didn't get the questions in. Uh, come and fire them at the two Davids afterwards. Do join us for a drink. And their books in the traditional manner are on the table outside, and they may even be persuaded to sign them, I think, if you approach them with a pen. Thank you very much, and thanks to the two Davids.